Hello, I'm Peter Eyers and it's time for another episode of Stages. Today I have another guest from the West, playwright, director and actor Jeffrey J. Fowler. Jeffrey J. Fowler is a playwright, dramaturg, director and actor. He wrote and acted in the award-winning shows A History of Drinking and Elephants. He has performed in and co-created Fag Stag, Barley, The Advisors and with The Last Great Hunt Company presented All That Glitters and Lenore, The Rain. His other plays include Minnie and Mona, Play Dead, Price Tag, Improvement Club and Hope is the Saddest. He is a founding artist with The Last Great Hunt, a company determined to produce quality and relevant new work that is simultaneously artistically rigorous and engages audiences to be moved, inspired and challenged. Within this ethos, the artists have diverse range of aesthetics that results in the creation of eclectic mixes of work. His postgraduate studies were in directing at NIDA, soon returning to Perth to embrace the vivid art scene and continue a collaborative conversation, telling necessary stories, stimulating audiences and making excellent theatre. He's been an associate director of Black Swan State Theatre Company in Perth, where he established the Emerging Writers Program and continues the artistic conversation with The Last Great Hunt, the next generation of theatre makers in Western Australia. Yeah, one of the last shows Last Great Hunt did before we got funded, um, which was a, a play with songs, which has been a... Yeah, plays with songs are a thing I keep returning to. <laughs> uh, Why do you think that is? I'd secretly like to be a singer-songwriter. Right. Uh, not so secret. No, I... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think there's something about music that I love in terms of self-expression. And so, like, when you're writing plays, sometimes you want your people to, to sing or to have that the height of uh music but not being a not being a dancer or yeah being more of a songwriter than a um plays with yeah plays with songs seem like this kind of midpoint between what i want to do and what i can do in one singular aspect of what i do do you use the songs as a narrative device uh, uh, like are they original songs that you're yeah crafting oh yeah yeah yeah. yeah yeah i think that like when i first guess maybe was becoming an artist or like going toward that path as a 12, 13 year old. I was writing a lot of poetry, sitting at home on the piano, writing a lot of songs. And then I shifted over to drama through a very caring and inspiring drama teacher, Frank Murphy, who I think, um, you know, like I often think, you know, do you like the subjects that you liked at high school because you had good teachers um, or did you like the teachers because you were good at the subject? And, uh, yeah, so I think I shifted away from using it toward theatre then. Um, but that desire to write songs is still there. And is, you know, like, I think even when you're not actually crafting a bigger piece of work, like a really great emotional and creative release, to just, you, you can go and sit down and um, write a song any afternoon. You can't always sit down and act out a monologue alone in your living room it doesn't quite have the same uh, emotional uh, or creative payoff so you were what was your instrument at school it was the piano I guess yeah it was piano before high school and I actually didn't study music at high school I had a piano teacher when I was grade six and seven so late primary school and she was a wonderful um, wonderful person Gillian who 
I think I actually didn't really want to learn the piano even. I wanted to know a few chords and to be able to sing to them. I really liked hanging out with her and talking about dreams with her. Uh, and I did two years and it, yeah, it was more, it was never really about piano. It was just that piano is a great instrument to write songs on. You can play some chords, you can sing over the top. You're getting this thing that's inside you out. And you know, as you open up that uh, outlet more and more, it then spreads across and I started yeah, for some reason I suddenly started writing plays rather than songs or musicals. Mm. What was the fascination with dreams? Oh, I think that I was just... Dreams are a good way when you're a kid to um, look into creativity and talk about um, emotions and what's going... You know, that that incredibly exciting discovery of the world when you're very young. Uh, dreams, for a point, seem incredibly relevant. I don't even remember my dreams anymore and they're open to interpretation yeah yeah Yeah. they're open to interpretation and you get to interpret with them and I think this relationship where I had this piano teacher who kind of let me learn whatever I wanted to learn and we could talk about dreams like the act of sitting with an adult and having a creative conversation even at a very young age was thrilling and I think now you know I'm one of those awful painful artists who always says like, why am I, do- why am I doing this? Uh, why do I make art? And I think that it comes actually back to the best place in the world for me is the rehearsal room. And particularly when you're working on a, a new show, whether I'm the writer or we're, we're devising it as a group. And the best part of the rehearsal room is the creative conversation where you get to sit there with like-minded people and maybe even better people who have slight differences um, in their minds than you. And you just get to talk an idea out and then work it out physically or see how you could manifest that for an audience. Yeah, that's the creative conversation, I guess, is, is the thing that I'm always pursuing and what keeps me coming back to making art rather than like running away and being a car salesman as I tried to do once. <laughs> no, not so good? Um, it's very interesting. Yeah. Certainly being a car salesman exposes you to a different world of people, but not people that are not my people. Hmm. It's a different kind of spin too. Also, Sure. You, you are yeah. creating a persona and telling a story. You're probably uh, an era when you were at school that, that drama figured quite significantly as a subject. I don't know what it's like now. At the school that I went to, I went to an all-boys school. There were five of us in the drama class. So not a popular <laughs> subject, right? Not popular at all. So I graduated high school 2002 uh, and went straight to WAPA after that. So I had, like, I often think about this in terms of me being a maker. I finished... Um, university in 2005 which is the same year youtube and facebook kind of came out and became really big and so i kind of i was like i finished my drama education right before a massive change in how we um give out and take in entertainment and art and how we communicate to each other and i feel like i'm literally the very last of a certain kind of training that happened or that should be happening like i think training now really needs to adapt to the changes in the world that makes sense. I think about that yeah. moment. You've probably never known a time without a mobile phone. Oh, yeah. I didn't yeah. have a mobile phone until the end of uni. So third year uni. So, and that wasn't a smartphone. That was like, no, no, a, that was that was like a, a, a brick Nokia. phone. Yeah. So that I, I mean, I was, yeah, I think about that a lot. I'm on my phone all the time now. We're yeah. all on our phones all the time now. Think about that, that shift. And I was listening to this great lecture the other day by, um, what's her name? Carol... Joyce Oates, I think. I'm terrible with names. Uh, she was 
talking about how we're losing our attention spans and it's a thing that I think of again and again. Oh, in, in crafting theatre? In crafting theatre. And, you know, that we need this boredom, we need this time away from things going into our brain to actually find what comes out. I found that I find now the, the best way for me to be creative is to close the door and try and meditate for 20 minutes without doing anything. No pen, no paper, nothing. And I can't do it. I can't get to 20 minutes because as soon as you stop all the things going into your brain something surges out, forces its way out. Whereas you, sorry, you, you think now about, um, you know, you're going to the theatre and, and the play, you hear the play goes for three hours and you think, mm-hmm. oh my God, I can't do this. And I love it. I uh, love it. You love those long plays? <laughs> well, of course, all the great classics were, yeah. were uh, of a the, length. But... Theatre's the only time I can focus. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, actually, I think one of the, um, I love it. I can't even watch a movie by myself. I just get up and walk, walk out, like if I'm on the couch. Or you're distracted by a phone or... Yeah, yeah, that's right. I can't give it myself fully. But theatre, you're in this room. Everyone else is in there. There's such a social contract about staying. And and I have no problem in a dark room full of people sitting there and giving my full attention to something. And I think it's actually one of the last places in my life I can I can really do that. And my dream is like to make one of those eight-hour works. You know, I think the, the at the end of uni, the play that I saw that really made me go... Um, yeah, okay, there's not just good theatre, there's kind of world-changing theatre, and maybe it's a really naff choice, but, you know, I was a, just finishing being a student at the time, was uh, Robert Lepage's uh, Dragons trilogy, and it was the first... I'd never even heard of uh, eight-hour-long theatre before, and I remember seeing it and just being like, whoa, this is, this is unlike anything else in the world. Yeah, I forget that sometimes. It's epic. Um, and look, even in the commercial theatre now, you know, with the Harry Potter epics part one mm. part two on in Melbourne at the moment uh, the GP are quite willing to go along and sort of invest in that I haven't actually watched oh. like the last five Harry Potter films but I really want to go and see that play well, I really want to, I want the, the length of that experience and to see how that works on a commercial level because yeah. I kind of enjoy commercial theatre as well like mm. it's, it can be really exciting yes. apparently the theatre making is amazing yes so what were the artistic influences in your in your youth were the um, your family uh, theatre going family or no uh well yes we were we went because my cousin natalie ryan brand was is an actress and she does a lot of she was doing shows at a place in south perth called the old mill theater that did you know just really old classic plays done very traditionally but i think uh, duncan ord's mother ran it. oh yeah yeah constance yeah. ord right yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. we she did was... we did a show there um when i was at whopper oh right yeah it's a lovely little theatre. It is. Um, yeah, so so we were a theatre-going family in, in that way. Like, we'd go and see my cousin's plays. And I remember the theatre being an exciting place. I remember, like, getting a cup of tea and a, a biscuit at interval. And something and about... that's a part of the experience yeah, as well, yeah. I think something about being a kid in a foyer full of adults was really exciting. Mm. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I was in that way. And I remember, like, I have distinct memories of images from the plays my sister sisters were in like at their high school so I think those early imprints have, have, have stayed with me and maybe what drifted me towards theatre even before I was making it so how old were you do you think when you thought you might like to be an artist um I don't know I, I mean yeah I guess I guess you, you, I think by, you know like you, you ask a kid what they want to be I think I probably didn't have a great list of careers in my head and I would always say a teacher or a writer they were my two things. And I think just because you know what a teacher is when you're a kid, I yeah. also 
you know, hadn't predicted the advent of the internet or all the other um, opportunities. Unlike kids today, I couldn't say, oh, I want to be a YouTuber. Um, I don't know. I was always creative. It was always the number one thing about me, to me, from, from my perspective. Yeah. What sort of child were you? Were you a show-off or an introvert? Yeah. Um, lonely, lonely, runaway weirdo, likes to go away from everyone and just daydream kind of kid. Uh, at parties, we'd much prefer to hang out with the adults than the other kids. Had a few friends, but um, not none that I've kept from childhood. Yeah. Lonely kid. So your friends now, do they tend to be older or? No. So no. The, like my, my artistic peers now are the other makers in The Last Great Hunt and a few other theatre makers in Perth. Um, you know, we're all, I'm 33. And yeah, I have a group of friends who are older who are not in the arts. And then, you know, because I've stayed in Perth, come back to Perth, there's a generation younger than me, you know, who are coming out of the Bachelor of Performing Arts at Whopper now, who I'm becoming friends with. Well, I'm friends with them, but there's, yeah, friends of all ages now. Yeah. Well, let's talk about The Last Great Hunt. Sure. Which you just started to talk about now. That's a, a theatre company that's been creating original works for how long now? The last... Oh, goodness. Um, because <laughs> you're a founder are you a founder yeah. is that the right yeah, yeah. well so a few years ago I think it's five now yeah I think it's about five um, it's quite vague I guess to me because I'm bad with time uh, we had already been making uh, work in Perth I'd come back to so I'd been away I'd been living overseas and I came back to Perth for a job at Black Swan Um but a group of people were getting together to make a company because we wanted the attention of, I mean, because we wanted to work together, but also because we wanted the attention of what was at the time called the Department of Culture and the Arts. We wanted to move up a tier and, and um, be paid more regularly, but also, you know, the system was that you had to, and I think it still is this way for a lot of artists, and I think it's a really problematic system, is you think of an idea, you pour your heart into writing a grant, you wait nine months and then you find out you either have money or don't have it. So then nine months later, if you're lucky enough to get the money, you then maybe three months after that get to go into a rehearsal room and a year after that are getting put it to put the play on. That's how fast things are in, in WA, but also very slow in terms of you're thinking of an idea and then like a panel that is randomly elected each time from a pool of artists decides whether your idea is good or not. And I think that, I think one of the hardest things about, being an artist is the the constant disappointment and that's not always just financial that like or getting a grant or not that disappointment can also be um lots of other things anyway so we the people who became the last great hunt wanted to get out of that cycle and so we actually proposed a new funding model um and that was that we would still kind of work independently sometimes we work together so there's six of us in the company we work in all different constellations but the idea was there was a pool of money for us to develop ideas at the beginning of every year and we would develop whatever we wanted and then we still get funded for that now I think five years later and then after that we would you know seek more money so it meant you could have an idea and get into the rehearsal room immediately like I can think of an idea and go okay I want to work with um, these people from the last great hunt let's start on Monday and sometimes you work on an idea for three days and it's nothing and sometimes you work on it for five weeks and it, it you know it becomes a play um, that's how The Last Great Hunt started. It was actually about us shifting the funding model so that you didn't have to apply every idea 
but that we were still just a cohort of creators primarily. So there's no set number of projects that you would do in a year? It was just so the, what, is what set, evolved? Yeah, so what's set now is that each of the six of us have 10 weeks like on a ledger at the beginning of, of the year, and that's 10 weeks of development money. And so we just write up, up exactly what we're going to do. We send it to the other artists, uh, go into our rehearsal space and start working whenever we want. And because it's 10 flexible weeks... Um, you know, I was working at Black Swan. I still work at Black Swan, but I was um, there more regularly when I was the associate director for four years. I had heaps on my plate, so it would be like finding that, you know, that week in the year and go, okay, what's I can work on anything I want in this week and doing it. And it meant that we could be very responsive to what was going on. Like we made a show uh, about the um, refugee crisis called All That Glitters. And because we, we basically thought of the idea, got it on stage like developed it and got it on stage within a few months that meant that what we were talking about was still exactly in the newspapers as we were performing it. And I think that that responsiveness is killed by grant systems where you're applying and then waiting. And you also like, you know, yeah, I've sat on panels before where I've seen funding panels. I've sat on funding panels before where I've seen great ideas get flushed down the toilet because the panelists don't understand it or couldn't read the review, like couldn't read, couldn't read the application. Sorry. And yeah, I think it was really important that we broke that. And I think it's, it's one of the reasons that we're still making work today is because we've really been given free reign creatively. Where did the name come from? The big, the last a really long fight. <laughs> oh, really? Um, uh, then we just brainstormed forever. Uh, and that's the name that came up. We we went we spent days and days. We were talking about other things as well. We were talking about how the funding would work and what kind of work we wanted to do. But you know, there's there were seven of us at the time, and it, it just got voted in. <laughs> uh, you've said that there's something incredibly unique about the Perth scene, yeah, and where the last great hunt fits within it. I love that Perth scene is small. The last great hunt was established because we wanted to be the first generation that stayed in Perth. So to see that the new graduates are also staying is really exciting for me. It's a real community and we help each other. Um, how important is an artistic community to, to creativity? Well, I think particularly in theatre, it's everything. And I think it's a collaborative experience, isn't it? And yeah. And I think also because you're going to work faster and better with people that you already know. I think in those few times in my career as a director where I've met someone in an audition and then brought them into the room, it's, it's very hard to get the best out of someone the first time you work with them, particularly if you're, you know, like sometimes you just get a, a four week rehearsal period because I, I believe that, I mean, you know, the skill of a director helps and, and you can bridge that. And But I've always found the more you know someone, the better you can work with them, you know how they're going to tick how to push them and so I think when there's a community you know how to bring the best out in each other and you're socializing with each other um, but also creating together and I, 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 do, I do always think that creating theater is very social and I need to be not friends with people but I need to get along with people on a really human level to be able to find that creative spark I think yeah, I can't, I can't imagine how it works in, in industries where you're just like, I can't imagine having a room full of actors that I don't know. I would find that really complex and difficult and alienating, um, which often, you know, I think that the negative side of that is you can only ever bring in a couple of new people onto any project, I into the fold. And the, there is, you know, like it becomes obviously 
it becomes nepotism. It is nepotism, but it's nepotism because that's actually often what's best for the show is the reliability of the community. Um, but I also think a community is needed for all other reasons. It, it's needed to put the bums on seats, but also to have critical engagement with each other to create honesty. You actually, I think need to know each other. Well, um, I've been calling you an artist a few times through this conversation, but, but you're a dramaturg, an actor, a director, a playwright. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess it's good to have a, a big bag of skills. Yes. Um, is there a role that you favour over the others? or? Yeah, I think that changes at different points in my career. Like, I think, you know, when, when I, f- I first got to direct uh, at Black Swan when I was about, I guess, 27 or 28, uh, to do a main stage show there. And I think at that time, that really aligned with my idea of me being a, a director. I think it was Black Spirit was the first show I did in the Heath Ledger. Um, and like, I think the first time you get to do that, like to direct in a 500 seat theater with, uh, an incredible cast and the support of, you know, a state theater company, I would have at that point really readily said, oh, I'm a director. Um, because that was the version of me that was really excelling at the time. And I think at other times, I think there's something about writing a play and getting it on you just feel like all your stars are aligned. You feel like you're really, um, it feels great when you get it right as a playwright. And I think maybe more fulfilling because you've really crafted that work from the beginning. And I think when you're a playwright, it's not about finding, you know, as a director, you find something that you believe in and that you believe you can do well. And you try and articulate what that playwright has put down for you as if you are the playwright, there's a lot more from, from my perspective, a lot more, of your own flesh in it and that can when that goes well that can be great and when that doesn't go as well as you had hoped I think that a play failing hurts a lot more when you've written it than when you've directed it the director can blame people (laughs) the playwright can't I think is the play playwriting a solitary experience Do do you find that you have to lock yourself away to sort of create no no Uh, I'm not that playwright I'm the I'm the playwright who needs the actors and 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 wants to workshop it and and wants the company i've written a few plays by myself um i've written a solo show and a few other things but to me it's about i just believe so i believe so much in what a group of people can do together and so that can be on a scale from really relying on and believing in um the actor and actors and their feedback or you know like I think there's something wonderful when a playwright tailors a role specifically for an actor. And often for me, one of the greatest unlocks in finishing a play is actually casting it. So knowing who it is and I'll sit there and I'll have that actor's voice in my head and I'll think of them. And you know, like you go home and you write all night by yourself, but then you go back in and get three hours of um, wonderful feedback. And I'll often call off a day of rehearsal three hours in and go home and I'm going to rewrite. And that's usually what the first week or two is like. If I'm writing and directing, that is. Uh, you just mentioned directing Blythe Spirit. Yeah. Noel Coward's mm-hmm. Blythe Spirit. Stylistically, I assume that would be different to stuff that you've created or, or not. Does it in yeah. does working on a text like that inform you Look, it in was, the way that you create? Um, Blythe Spirit is fun. <laughs> I would have loved to cut it down to 90 minutes as Noel Coward actually did for TV, but it's like a, you know, it's a three-hour play. Uh, it was... This really interesting thing of 
Like when you as a director, you aim to be a state theatre company director and that's your goal and that had been my goal for a long time. And then you get there and I think that I then did what I thought a state theatre company director needed to do, which was Blythe Spirit um, in a quite traditional way. I did an inversion on the ending, which I... Which makes a lot of sense if you've seen it. So I don't know how well you know Blythe Spirit, but oh, the ending, well. good. <laughs> so, um, you know, the ending is the husband saying, oh, Turu ladies, I never cared about you. I'm better off without you. And we did an inversion on that where the whole final monologue was very ironic. We did all of the magic tricks, um, props falling and, and ghost magic, a scene early and made this final monologue that's meant to be screw the women I never needed them anyway completely ironic and and quite sad and I like oh actually I have um, berated these women and wished them out of my life and and now that they're gone I need them which was my attempt I guess at you know like what what do we do with these sexist old plays do we just go well they're old and sexist and let's have fun with them anyway or do you try and push against it the problem being that no one in Perth had seen Blythe Spirit <laughs> and the handful of people that had were like, oh yeah, what happened at the end? You really didn't understand. He's meant to be like angry at the women. He's meant to be, you know, telling them, hey, I, I got away from you. And it's like, I, I understand the play. So it really, it was like, I was trying to fit as a director into what I thought a director needed to be. And I think the more that I directed at Black Swan the more comfortable I got, you know, and then doing shows that, not that I don't like Black Spirit, but that I was doing it because I believed it was the right play for the company rather than it being the right play for like where I was at or who I was, who yeah. I am. Uh, and then getting to do things that align with me more, like getting to do Lally Cats, The Estedford, or getting to do a new work, um, a Black Swan called Girl Shut Your Mouth, like where, yeah, I slowly found my voice. I guess the more I had proven myself, the more permission I got. So you studied uh, directing at NIDA yeah. uh, and then went overseas for that brief stint. Why was yeah. it important to return to WA as an artist? Why didn't you go back to the East Coast? Um, well, because Kate Cherry offered me a job in WA. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, like I came back. Uh, I had been living in New York with my boyfriend of the time. And New York is a great place to live, but... It was very hard to get my foot in the door. I was, you know, I still hadn't got a lot on the CV at the time. And, you know, like, what what part... I often think about that as, like, one of the most um, defining forks in the road of my life. Do you stay, like, in this romantic relationship in an incredible city where you're nobody? <laughs> or do you come back to your hometown but actually get the job? It was the job I'd had my eyes on for years. I think it doesn't. It surprises me less that I came back to Perth because I also love Perth and I want Perth to develop and grow and bloom. But you'd grown up watching Black Swan productions, I, I imagine. Uh, no, my parents never went to Black Swan shows, and I didn't watch them at uni. But I kind of in my in my couple of years between Whopper and NIDA, um, watched Black Swan shows, and that's when I was like, I'm going to work for that company. So, what did you do at Whopper? Uh, contemporary performance. So right. it was a course that is got removed from WAPA and is now back at WAPA under the name Bachelor of Performing Arts, which is like a, you learn to um, act and you learn to write and you learn to direct and you do a little bit of design and you do devising. So it's like a real all-rounder course. Um, it's the same, it's like, so there's, there's a course there that is the same course now, but it just has a different name. Right. Yeah. 
Uh, I don't remember what I was saying before. Yeah. <laughs> um, so tell me about some of some of your works. I'm looking at Fag Stag. Oh yeah, yeah. Because that was you co-created that. Yeah, I wrote and, that with, and performed. Yeah, I wrote that with Chris Isaacs, and that's about Perth. In fact, uh, it's about two guys in their late twenties, which is what we were. So there's, you know, it's not a true story, but it is uh, that element of I think we gave a lot of what what we were going through at the time. Um, into that work we were both single at the time uh chris is a friend of mine he's straight i'm not and i think that perth breeds a really particular kind of gay guy where i got, i remember moving to sydney when i was 24 and being shocked when i saw men hold hands in the street like shocked and so i remember um being on a bus and seeing billboards with men on them in underwear advertising for like you know the gay gays and and just like I couldn't I couldn't believe it, and I think I didn't realize how didn't realize what position gay men were in Perth until I didn't live in Perth, and then I think coming back like I had lived in New York, and then I I'd lived in Sydney, and then I came back to Perth, and I was going through this real like God, I'm <laughs> I'm turning thirty, and I'm living here, and I'm single, and I'm unhappy with I, I wasn't that unhappy with being gay, but there were elements of that that I hadn't ironed out, and um. Chris, you know, we were 28 and 29. I think Chris was, you know, dealing with like the responsibilities of being a straight guy, the expectations of what to do with all this privilege that you, um, that you have. How does that fight against or sit with like, what if you're socially incredibly privileged, you're a straight white man, but you're like severely depressed at the same time and can't get your life together. And everyone's saying you've got everything. So and we looked at the friendship between these two characters. And in that, we looked at the friendship between ourselves. And it's a simple, a very simple storytelling show. And I, and it kind of showed that we, like, you know, we, we were really um, thrilled that it went off so well. And that we've, we've gotten to do that in, yeah, like every Australian city now. And we've taken that to Edinburgh Fringe, where we, like, just had a dream run at Edinburgh Fringe. Um, yeah. And I think something about it is... Something about it is that it's two people being really honest, even though characters go on stage, not us, but those characters are basically dealing with what we were dealing with at the time, going through a series of fictional events. And I think that, you know, of all the stuff I've written, that's probably the most, um, and Chris co wrote it with me, the most natural, the most real, you know, like a lot of the other stuff I write is magical worlds. Uh, you know, I wrote, I wrote a play about a world where people um, have their hands cut off at 16 and then wear other people's hands as luxury goods, like this big kind of uh, social satires and, and big metaphors and, you know, a play about um, a world where elephants live with humans. Really stupid stuff. Well, not stupid, but um, magical, bizarre, over-the-top stuff. Well, dream, back to your dreams again from childhood. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess. Um, yeah, like, so there's a kind of a, a body of my work that's, highly creative and, and, and metaphorical and, and image-based. And then Fagstag is this one little storytelling show that, that could. Do, do uh, is there a, an element of the biographical in all of your works? I mean, obviously, where hands are being cut off and all that sort of thing. But, yeah. but do you find that there's something that, that, that you know that you will um, feed into what you're writing and what you're... Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm always interrogating... I think I, I think w when I get it right, I'm trying to interrogate the world, and my way of doing that is also interrogating me, <laughs> uh, and that and that when both of those elements work, 
um, that the play should work. So like, you know, when I write a play second hands about a world where people are cutting their hands, so you're like, you get your hands cut off on your 16th birthday, but if you live in a developed nation, you then buy hands from the developing world and you wear them. It's really fashionable to wear dark colored hands in this world. Um, that's not about me personally, but it is me reflecting on my materialism, me going through my wardrobe and going, what do I own that's made in a sweatshop? Me like looking at the people around me. So there's always, I, I would never like to try and write something that I felt was so removed that I didn't relate to it or didn't feel culpable in it or didn't, didn't feel like, I mean, if it doesn't speak to me, it's not going to speak to anyone, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, so you, obviously you're fond of words. Yeah. Yeah. So is there a, a, a favorite um, uh, for, formation of those words? Is it lyrics or novels or screenplays or sure. do you have a favorite? I mean, I, I really think like, you know, you asked me before who are the formative artists. I don't know if I answered the... I mean, they're actually people like Tori Amos, Arnie DeFranco, Dolly Parton, like actually singer-songwriters, um, Fiona Apple, like as a teenager having this, you know, huge, huge emotional internal life, um, dealing with who I was, being at an old boys' school, I felt they were this incredible outlet. In fact, the plays I was seeing at the time were like pretty traditional plays that I don't think, I think I really enjoyed the experience of being there, but I wasn't having this like wow, this is what words can do in a lot of those, the plays I was managing to see. So yeah, like really lyrics and lyricists. Well, a song is like a short play, I suppose. Or some yeah. Of those narratives of Dolly Parton or... Yeah, well, her, her songs particularly and are really very autobiographical too, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's something wonderful about her music. I've, I've made a play about it, like I'm, I'm, I'm into her in a deep way. And I think also... What oh, you'll be able to see 9 to 5 <laughs> next year. You, you know, she's bringing... Oh, really? To Sydney, yes. I didn't the, know that. The stage musical. See, yeah, okay. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Nine to Five's not my favourite film, despite it having Dolly in it. But I'd, I don't know. I haven't seen the musical version. There's something about the incredible emotional access of a song, like that a song can make you feel in three minutes, if not a few seconds, what sometimes a play takes an hour to do. And I think there's something about... You know, I think this goes back to what I said before, like the secret desire just to... Like, yeah, yeah, just to be a singer-songwriter. Are you effective in hammering out a play or do you need a deadline? Do do you need that that pressure to Um, cross the finish line? I mean, yeah, you know, they say the deadline is the greatest muse. Really depends. Uh, So what my job is now at Black Swan, and and I've also done this for six years, is uh, mentoring six writers. I run an emerging writers group every year and being on the other side of watching people <laughs> uh, bargain with themselves, bargain with me, lie to themselves, lie to me and and procrastinate is really fascinating. Uh, when I was directing The Estadford by Lally Katz, I was looking at inter- old interviews that she had done and she talks about how when she wants to write, first she has to clean her whole house top to bottom, organise um, every book, like call every friend that she needs to speak to. And I unfortunately... I mean, the Lally Cats camp. Like, I am uh, I'm a procrastinator. And it is... Like, you, it's so funny because when, you know, like, when you're mentoring someone, you're like, 
just write it. Just write the bad play. Write the bad scene. I would say to them, if you deliver me a really bad draft, that would be awesome because then we can work together and we can get, I can get a bad play and I can work with you to make it a good play, but you can't get nothing. You can't grab nothing. And so like when, yeah, so I have the idea. I know what I want to do. And it is the guilt that drives me. The guilt of, well, the actors will be in the room tomorrow. So... And I've gotten better. I've really gotten better. I can now write sometimes three weeks before a deadline where I used to really write. But, you know, the, 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 the secret then is set as many deadlines as you can and, and say to an actor, hey, will you, um, like, uh, you know, like, let's, let's rehearse on Monday. Let's pull it early and pull those rehearsals back. You know, I would, like, in my ideal situation, you meet with actors, like, once a month on the first day of the month you know, over a year so that every month you're making sure that you have something new that you can show that progress because it's the, you know, the shame or the guilt of turning up and having people turned up to work with you and you have nothing. I couldn't feel, I couldn't deal with that. I can disappoint myself, not other people. Where do you write? Anyway, I could could write. You don't have to, you don't have a study or you don't have to go to the park or. No, um, I don't have a creative space. I don't have a thing I need to do. Um, the room needs to be clean enough. Do you handwrite or do you tap away on no, the laptop? I'm a, I'm, well, actually, I first of all, I don't have the laptop. I close all the shutters. I um, make sure no one can see me. And then I just talk to myself for a long time. And, and actually, the rule is no, no writing. And I'll act out the scene and I'll do it quite a few times. I'll play all the parts, go from the beginning. The moment I'm on my computer... Um, there's this block there if I don't know exactly what I want to write. So I can't sit down. I can't put fingers to keyboard until I know the beginning, middle and end of the scene. The rare exception to that is co-writing. And so I just did a show with Gita Bizard where we were co-writing and we would have a Google document open and we would both type into the document at once, which was brutal because you would write a line and the person you're co-writing with, like she could just delete that line straight away or talk about it. So you're in a constant state of writing and editing. And it took us about, you know, we wrote that play over two years, but it took a long time to get used to that method. But my, my preferred method is not on the computer until it's crystallized. It's really clear. Yeah. You hear of Edward Albee who used to handwrite out the entire play. Yeah. It's extraordinary it's, now. I couldn't do it. I don't think I'd... It's a different cognitive process, I think, too, actually, sort of tapping away on a laptop as to to handle. I certainly think differently when I'm typing something out. I think that the slowness of handwriting would... I mean, I'm just... You know, I grew up playing video games as well, so I've always been able to type. I don't think I could ever handwrite a creative work, not even a poem. Uh, you've also said, I'm really proud that there isn't a through line in all my work. I write in different styles. I create comedies, dramas, pieces that are musically driven because I'd get bored if I was just doing the same process over and over again. Mm. How do you find the right style, form, shape to marry with the subject that you're writing about? Yeah, well, it just it just really depends on what that what um, the subject is. I suppose. What the subject is, you know, like does it sing? Does it is it is it a comedy? Yeah, is it is it surreal? Is it is it real? Who who am I criticizing? Who are they going to recognize on stage? Uh, yeah, so, and form is really important. Like, and I think the works of mine 
that I like the most are sometimes where I've gone really out there with form. Like I made a show called A History of Drinking, which was about one person's history of drinking, but also the history of alcohol. And the show works by, I've created the bar, the audience come in, they can order a cocktail, I make the cocktail, I talk about the history of the spirit, the history of the cocktail glass, and then a story associated to that drink for, this is my one-man show, for the guy making it, his name is Adam. And so the form of the show is actually people, the audience literally come to a cocktail bar and are served cocktails. So it's immersive. Yeah, it's like an immersive kind of, I guess, almost bordering on performance art, but there is a storyline. And they're like, they're characters in the play, I guess, almost, are they? They, the audience are just, yeah, they're, they're they're the patrons of the bar. They're not requested to say anything other than to order drinks from me. Um, and I make those drinks and, and give them. And so it actually depends what drinks get ordered within the hour of the show, what parts of the storyline get told. So like it was all, it was all themed. Like every vodka based cocktail was about this one character. Every tequila based cocktail was about the mother. Every whiskey based cocktail was about the father of this little family that was torn apart by alcoholism. So I was, lit- I, you know, I was literally so I learned to make cocktails for this. Uh, and is it performed in a bar, an actual bar? We would get, uh, like, I did it once at Pika and once at the Blue Room. We would actually recreate a bar in right. a theatre space. You could do it in a bar. Yeah, because um, that big budget if you're sort of serving spirits. Yeah, but people will pay a big ticket price. Oh, you know, okay. because, uh, well, big for me at the time when I, when I first made it. But, you know, they get their drink included. The only thing that they don't realise sometimes is you don't get a drink until I take an order from you. So... Right. You know, that's fine. But anyway, but in terms of form, it was like, if I want to speak about alcohol, what form can I do? And I was like, well, let's actually make a bar, you know? And I think when you get that synergy right as a as an artist, it feels very exciting. Do you read your reviews? Yeah. Yeah. You do? Yeah. <laughs> oh, so many artists that I speak to uh, shy away from reviews or certainly don't. Why do you read reviews? Look, let me tell you, a very successful artistic director in Australia once told me over a drink that he never read his reviews and one drink later in that conversation mentioned something from a review and how it really bothered him. And that review had only been published two days earlier. And I, like, I really struggle to believe that people don't read reviews at all. But why do I review? Like, why do I read a review? Um, because I'm a human who likes to have their ego stroked. Yeah. yeah. Um, because it feels nice to do well, and because you want to get better. Like you, like if you don't get feedback, and I don't know. Like I'm sure it's a problem everywhere, but I think. In a city like Perth, um, it's not a huge city. Look, it's two million people. It's not. It's not a country town anymore. But uh, I think it's hard sometimes for people that know you well to give you the feedback that you want. And I think a review could and should be a place for people to really say what they think. And I think unless you actually can grasp how an audience are taking in your show outside your ego-driven hope for how they're taking it. Like, unless you can get that other feedback, I don't think you can change as an artist. And I think that to ignore, to constantly ignore reviews, I don't know. Like, I think it's part of the art form. I think reviewers are an incredibly important part of the theatre ecosystem. Well, you've also said every show that you make, you hope to make better than the last. Yeah. So I guess that that the the reviewers' um, contribution there is is paramount to that. And you need to know who you whose review you care about. I think also there's a lot of very young reviewers in Perth that very freely hand out 
um, very positive reviews. Um, I'm like, I'll read them. That's nice. But they're often not necessarily confident enough as reviewers yet to be the kinds of reviews I'm talking about when I say like I read them. In Perth, there's also a problem of like our state newspaper now no longer has an art section. Uh, online reviewing obviously has to happen really quickly. Um, yeah, like I, I would, yeah, I would love our reviewing culture to get even stronger and be more reliable. And I think it's, I think when artists say, oh, well, I don't even read the reviews, I think that actually re- weakens review reviewing culture. And I think there's an inherent problem in that almost um yeah there's an almost disconnect about refusing to read reviews is criticism so bad is it so yeah well it can be it, as you say we all like to have our ego stroked uh what makes a good play uh gotta be funny uh, <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i've seen long days journey into into night there's not a lot of laughs there was it good though i saw the stc production in 2010 I saw that that wasn't good I left it interval um, and then I saw it on Broadway with Jessica Lang. oh wow okay about four hours of it right which is a big ask of an audience yeah. it's alright for the actors they get half an hour off stage every now and then was it four great hours um, two and a half okay no look it was very good it's just very long yeah it just seems to sort of go over the same territory again and again and again sure they do warn you in the title Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, Jessica Lange, Gabriel Byrne, um, Michael Shannon, and um, a, a young actor who was in the newsroom. So it was great to see those great artists at mm-hmm. work, of course. Um, what makes a great play? I mean, like, I really believe you have to entertain people. So I kind of meant funny because I always want my place to be funny. I've never tried to make something that isn't funny, but I can enjoy things that don't try and do that. But entertainment, and that doesn't mean it needs to be showbiz or razzle-dazzle, but it does to me mean an understanding that it needs to stimulate the audience in a way where, in fact, I think, you know, there's this problem of people watching theatre like it's television. It's not television. It's not as passive as television. You do need to engage as an audience member, but I think good theatre is engaging that audience member back and giving them, really giving them a lot and not standing above them or being cleverer than them. I mean, like, you know, I, like a great play is great opportunities for performers, like people that get to do something awesome on stage, whether that's a monologue or something physical or even, you know, just wear a great costume. Like it's all about great opportunities where you get to see something. And I think also great theatre is has to have a good understanding of... Um, not being, not trying to do what film and television can do better. I think that's really important in 2019. You know, like, don't try and... I hate theatre that's like television. It kills me. I always like work that makes the audience culpable and to make them think. I think a good piece of art will inspire a very lively conversation. I hope I do that. You, where are you? <laughs> don't know where that? you're getting right. all these But, but, but that's from. absolutely true, isn't it? You want... When you go to the theatre, you want to walk away sort of being able to actually... If it's, if it's been a great experience, you do walk away sort of having a conversation, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the best compliment you can get is, oh, you know, we were still talking about it weeks later. Hopefully because it was good, not because it was you, tragic. Yeah. Yes, there's still a lot of conversation. <laughs> there can be a lot well. of fun talking about a bad, bad play. Mm. I do think, uh, like, in terms of what I've said there in that thing you've quoted me in, audience culpability is really important. 
I think that I've gotten over my phase where I believe that all theatre must be political and, and, you know, wrap the audience on the knuckles because I think it's actually a huge turn-off. But I think what I like to do is to gently provoke the audience to think about what they could do differently. And I think there's a real... Yeah. People don't want to pay money to go and be told what to do, but I think people enjoy it when they pay you money and then they turn up and go, yeah, I hadn't actually thought of it that way. And I think when you get it right in terms of making the audience culpable they enjoy the fact that they have had their head slightly tilted on an idea or an issue yeah does that make sense uh, absolutely it makes sense Um, what do you find most exciting about the theatre yeah I think that it's how good it can be when it goes right like actually for me the comparison like a lot of films are very good I enjoy film it's a great medium I've never seen a film that could do to me what the reality of live theatre can when it happens that that one in 50 times do where you're just the you and all these people mostly strangers around you have felt this thing where a group of people who are so finessed, who've never let like energy drop out for an hour, two hours, whatever they've done, where you, where you can get so enthralled. And I think when theater works, it is just, it's a chemistry between like hundreds of people in a space together that no one ever gets to see that performance again. Like that will never exist. It's completely swept away afterwards. And I think when you get, when you get to be that, like when you get that last ticket to that sold out, season of that show and it lives up to its expectation maybe it's like you know you want what you can't have the unavailability of theatre afterwards also improves it that movie that great classic movie I missed I can go watch it any in 10 years from now that play I missed I lost it do you know what I mean like yeah uh, yeah, I guess something about the ephemeral nature of theatre and the liveness of course the, the liveness the fact that these people are they are undertaking a risk in front of you there is such a severe risk in being a performer and you only need to see a bad performer. Like sometimes I'll see a bad actor on stage and go home and, and just think, I don't know if I can get on stage again because imagine being that bad and having to do that in front of that many people and that director hasn't saved them or their co-stars couldn't save them. Or, you know, I think that the risk is exciting. Jeffrey, thank you. It's been lovely hey, thank you. having this conversation. Um, and uh, what's next? Uh, I have just begun with uh, Claire Testoni and Andrew Sutherland, an adaptation of Dracula, and we're looking at it from we're looking at it through the angle of uh, of penetration, particularly, and, and Dracula as a series of penetrations. Uh, so, queer adaptation of Dracula, but we've just begun. It's, it's really it's a very interesting book, and then all the film adaptations are so incredibly different. Uh, so, so much license has been has been taken with it. And so we're seeing how does that work on stage as a live film. Yeah. Brilliant. Hey, thanks so much. Thank you. I had the great fortune to record many great conversations with creatives whilst I was in Perth last year. Do take a look at past episodes featured in Series 2 and you'll find many of those conversations with great West Australian artists and practitioners. People like Dr Richard Wally, Eva Grace Mullaly from the Yuri Yarkin Theatre Company, Janet Holmes Accord, Ivan King and Carolyn Chard from West Australian Opera, all offering great insight and reflection of the excellent art being made in Western Australia. My next guest on stages is Mr John Clark. 
He led the National Institute of Dramatic Art for over 40 years, as well as being an influential director and contributor to the development of an Australian theatre via the Jane Street Theatre, the Sydney Theatre Company and the original production of David Williamson's Don's Party. It's a fascinating conversation and you're not going to want to miss out. So subscribe to the podcast and you'll receive each new episode as it drops. Thanks for listening. I'm Peter Ayers, as always, and you've been listening to Stages. Catch you next time.